We're going to be continuing in our uh, closing out of our study of Second uh, Corinthians 8 and 9. We worked our way through verse by verse through these marvelous passages. We laid some groundwork at the beginning, and we're closing up with some groundwork at the end. Uh, God's plan for a healthy church is our study through First and Second Corinthians. And specifically, we are going through material possessions, and then why not a tie, the biblical understanding of the myth of the 10%. So if you've not been with us, you will be blessed today. Don't worry, just because you haven't gone through all these things, you'll, uh, you'll know where you're supposed to be. Some may remember from a number of years ago a syndicated column written by Ann Landers. You may have heard the name, even if you never read the column. Uh, for over 40 years, she was the world's best read and most widely syndicated newspaper column, a fixture in 1,200 newspapers with a readership of approximately 90 million readers. One of her, uh, one of her literally thousands of of uh, very interesting letters that she's received, and I've used numerous ones as openers. But this one is interesting. She said, uh, she re received this from a young lady who said, quote, my uncle was the tightest man I've ever known. All his life, every time he got paid, he took $20 out of his paycheck and put it under his mattress. Then he got sick and he was about to die, and he was as he was dying, he said to his wife, I want you to promise me one thing. Promise what, she asked. I want you to... Promise me that when I'm dead, you'll take the money from under my mattress and put it in my casket so that I can take it all with me. Girl's letter went on with a story. Well, he died, and his wife kept her promise. She went in, got all that money the day he died, went to the bank, deposited it, and wrote a check out and put it in his casket. There you go. I wrote a check out. He's never going to, never mind. It's a joke. Uh, grenade. It'll blow up on your way home. Um, it's interesting, it's a funny story, of course, but it, it plays in very well to what we've been talking about. It would have done well, I think they would have done well to remember Luke 16, 9. Uh, Jesus talking about money, he said, use it to make friends for yourselves by means of the wealth of unrighteousness, so that when it fails, they'll receive you into the eternal dwellings. He who's faithful in a very little is faithful also in much, and he who is unrighteous in a very little thing is unrighteous also in much. Therefore, if you've not been faithful in the use of unrighteous wealth, who will entrust true riches to you? And we talked about that. What are really true riches? If, if wealth isn't true riches, which the world would say wealth is true riches, what, what are the true riches Jesus was talking about? Power in ministry, ability to lead people to Christ, uh, a spiritual power to help and to, to build the kingdom. And all these kinds of things are true riches. Verse 12 says, if you have not been faithful in the use of that which is another's, um, who will entrust true riches to you? Been faithful in that use of another's. Who will give you that which is your own? So who owns everything the Lord does? We're using stuff that he has given us. So we can't be faithful in what is another's. Um, it's hard to imagine the Lord would award us things that are our own. And so no servant can serve two masters for either. He will hate the one, love the other, or he'll be devoted to one and despise the other. Jesus ends up this passage, you cannot serve God in wealth. And as clever as the ant was, of course, in the study, the reality of the story can really be played out over and over even among those who claim Christ if they're not careful because they'll spend their life hoarding things that cannot go with them. And I think it really is true over the course of time in the church even that we really, we really align more with the uncle in the story or perhaps with the worldly businessmen who had accumulated everything on earth and built more barns but hadn't or wasn't rich towards the Lord. So that's the reason, I think, for Jesus' teaching in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9 to certainly avoid, uh, through the Apostle Paul, avoid that kind of thing in the church and to show us how to avoid it uh, in joy and to be lay up, able to lay up treasure that doesn't fade away. 
Last week we were together, uh, we set our focus on understanding the basis for the default mode of many believers. This is how I, what I, how I told you we would wrap up all of this. Uh, the um, tithe giving or the 10% giving, which is so prevalent, even though we don't see this teaching anywhere in the New Testament as a command for the church. And, and we don't see it in particular in places where we would imagine that we would see it, uh, particularly in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, where we find God's standard for New Testament giving uh, uh, laid out for us so clearly. And, and we started our wrap-up study last week, and I told you it would take two, uh, two times. It's my intent, Lord willing, to finish it this week. And the first question, our overall question that we asked last week, I'll just give you a quick review so you're on board with it. Our overall question we wanted to answer was, in, in light of the absence of New Testament instruction, on the 10%, why do some believers believe they need to give 10%? And, and we saw that basically it comes from a mix-up in our understanding of the Old Testament. Uh, and the reasoning for the 10% goes something like this. It's always a little bit uh, like this. It includes these things anyway. People will say, in the Law of Moses, we read that the Jews were supposed to give a tenth, and the thought is that uh, that's what they gave, so consequently that's what we're supposed to give. And it goes on further, and people will say, well, Abraham gave a tenth before the law, so giving a tenth goes, uh, came before the law, so it, it transcends the law. It was in place before, so it's still in place after the law, and therefore it's the standard of giving that's universal. So those two arguments or something like that uh, is very similar to what we would hear. And, and we saw that that reasoning, this reasoning here is particularly before, uh, it was before the law, so it transcends the law, and it's, it exists after the law, so it's the standard. If you use that as the measuring rod, and you lay that template over the scriptures, you're going to have some trouble when you come to things like Sabbath observance and sacrificial system and a whole bunch of other things that were there before the law. And, and if you say that they're still there and they're universal, that's going to cause you some problems. And there are many others we don't have time to look at. So we won't go back over all of that. And what we saw, though, really... That clarifying and understanding of giving throughout God's economy will help us see that there are two kinds of giving uh, in uh, God's economy, and, and this distinction is very important. We started to make it clear last time. We'll finish it this time. There's two kinds of giving in God's economy, required giving and voluntary giving. Those are the only two kinds of giving, and so we began to look and ask some sub-questions, and when we understand the difference between those two types of giving, the mix-up is straightened out. And we started a subgroup of questions under that main question, why do people continue uh, to say 10% even though it's not 10%? And by the way, people don't even give 10%. Only, uh, only 20% of people actually give uh, regularly in the church, and, and that average is 2.5%. So if we thought it was 10%, but we weren't doing 10%, that's a whole problem in and of itself. We won't deal with that right now. But the subquestion was this, and, and I'm not going to go through all of these just for time. I'm just going to sum them up for you. The first question was, and if you need this, you can find us on Spotify, you can find us on, on uh, YouTube, and you can look at all the background that we laid for this. But the first question, the sub-question was, in the time before Moses, so this is before the law, was there voluntary giving? In other words, free will giving, just like we've been talking about how it's been described in the New Testament, was there free will giving? And, and, and we saw that, that, and that type of Giving is from the heart, you know, sacrificial, generous, uh, no obligation, you're not supposed to do it grudgingly, all that kind of thing. And the answer we saw was yes, there was. Before the law, there was free will giving. And we looked at a few passages, and they concerned Cain and Abel, and Noah after the flood, and Abram after God had given him the promise, and after conquering the Canaanite kings, uh, they came and gave an offering. And we saw that before the law, free will giving was done, much like we saw in our study in 2 Corinthians. So it's not related to a tenth. Uh, it wasn't required by God. It was voluntary. We didn't see any, any requirement that we know of a frequency. Um, it was free will offering. It was from the heart. It was a thankful expression. It was out of gratefulness. It was out of trust. 
and, and we recognize the goodness and faithfulness of God. And in some places it's called a tithe, but, but uh, we saw there was no uh, continuation of it. And, and in Abraham's case, when it was called a tithe, 160 years he lived on the earth, he gave it one time, and he, not of his, all of his stuff, it was only a tenth of the best. And so in, in, other, in other places it's called an offering. God didn't say it has to be 10%. We didn't see that anywhere. We just saw that type of giving. Now, our question was, then our next question was, in the time before Moses, was there required giving? And, and this is giving that was commanded. So there was free will giving in the time before Moses' law. Now, was there required giving? Uh, the answer to that was yes. We saw from a few passages we looked at, especially from Joseph and the God-instituted tax to keep the people alive during the seven-year famine. And that came from the Lord. It came through Joseph to the people. It included the Hebrew people as well. 20% of what they had raised was to go to be put in a storehouse to take care of them during the time there was a famine. This was required giving. It was commanded by God. You had to do it. It was compulsory, and it funded the government. So to sum up, before the law of Moses, Voluntary free will giving directed towards God, just like we've been looking at. No double-mindedness, no pressure to bear. A heart giving was generous, it was sacrificial. Required giving also was directed towards the government, and it was, and it was, uh, uh, it was commanded taxation to support the government and its functions. Now, third question uh, that we looked at was, in the time during the law of Moses, so after the law was given, uh, was there required giving? This is giving that was commanded. Just like we saw before the law where in Joseph's time it was commanded. This is again, is it during the law? And the answer to the question was yes, there was. And we won't look at all these passages again, but we saw the word tithe used. This is a required tenth. We saw this over and over again. We saw the tithe. The, tithe, uh, the first tithe that was required for the Jews was for the Levites. They represented the government at the time, a theocracy, later a kingship. It was a form of ta taxation. Uh, uh, further, we saw that God also set up another tithe for the Jews that was to be brought to the festivals he'd ordained. So, so a national celebrations and ceremonies, a tenth of all that they had. Both of these were tenths of all they had. And they were required to bring these tents, uh, and they had to uh, come to those events with them. Additionally, we saw that God set up another tithe for the Jews, and this is every third year, 10% of what they had for the welfare tithe to take care of the poor. And so you have this required giving, 10% for the government, 10% for the festivals, 30 and a third percent for the poor. That's 23 and a third percent tithe required giving. And remember, before the law, required giving was taxation. That's Joseph. During the law, required giving was taxation. That's the Jews. Take care of the government, take care of the festivals, all that. And, and so it should never be confused with free will giving. A tithe is not that. A tithe was required giving. And, and we don't give in support of the Levite because we don't have a theocracy anymore, and we don't give in support of national festivals. We don't celebrate those right now during this time of the church age, and nor do we storehouse tithes for the poor. So those things, beloved, were in the Old Testament. They were tithes required giving. And then we saw that there were several other guidelines in place for required giving based on the situation, uh, from the canceling of debt every seven years to, to leaving fields fallow for the poor and, and uh, leaving gleanings and corners of the field unharvested. And, and these things could have been a considerable amount owed in addition to what was already part of the required giving. And obviously, when you add all those things together, you're not going to come up with 10%. So the argument that, you know, this is what the Jew did and so this is what we're supposed to do, uh, that's a mix-up of terms, and I think we're able to put that to rest. Now, our next question, uh, was there voluntary giving or free will giving during the time of the law? We, we know th that there was required giving, but was there free will giving, the type of giving we've been studying? And the answer to that is, yes, there is. And, and I would suppose it comes as no surprise that it looks exactly like the voluntary giving 
we saw before the law, Cain and Abel, Abraham and, and Jacob. And it looks exactly like the type of giving we studied in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. Uh, same heart attitude, same generosity, seeing a need and meeting a need, all of those kinds of things. Out of love, out of trust, that's our security. We're showing the Lord that he's provided. Out of thankfulness, in obedience, without covetousness, without, without double-mindedness, voluntary proportional sacrificial, all the things that we've seen, it's going to include all of this. Now, there are a few places that we can look at this, and this is going to pull all this together, begin to pull all this together for us. But there's this general statement as we begin to look at all of this. It's a general statement from Proverbs 3 that really gives us the sense of all free will giving. And it says this, Honor the Lord from your wealth and from the first of all your produce so that your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will overflow with new wine. That's an interesting comment, and of course, this has to do with voluntary giving. And again, here it's in the idea of this axiom of, of uh, agricultural type of axiom. It's the type of seed that's sown, the quality of seed that's sown as a first fruit opposed to what's left over, that kind of thing. No requirement to do it, just honor him. Uh, there, no frequency is required, you know, no amount is required. Uh, realizing that when we give, we count out give God. You know, a, a wave, and, and we don't have time to look at all this because it would take us weeks to cover all these other things. But just so that you know, and you can kind of mark this in your mind for a later study, um, free will giving uh, in, in the time during the law, that was indicated by a wave offering, and you've read this, a heave offering, uh, an offering of thanksgiving. These are all free will givings during the time of the law. And so they're going to be referred to in that way. Realize this is not the required sacrifice for sin. And you come in and you offer certain things for certain sins and all that. This is above and beyond all of that. In the sacrificial system, we're going to see this type of free will giving. And, and mark this from Numbers chapter 18, verse 11. And I'm going to have you go a number of places in your Bible. So have it ready because I think it's important that you actually see some of these things and make some marks in your Bible. But we already know that the Levites were, supposed, were supported by a 10% required giving. And then we see in verse 11 of uh, Numbers chapter 18, in addition to that 10% that supported the theocracy, there was going to be something else, and it's going to come during the time of sacrifice. And, and the Lord's going to say, not just the 10% that's going to take care of you, but this, verse 11, also is yours, the offering of their gift. So this is a gift, a free will gift, and it's going to belong to the Levite too. And listen to how he describes it even all the wave offerings of the sons of Israel. In other words, you're coming up and waving it before the Lord. Lord, you've been very good to me. I offer this to you as part of my thanksgiving to you and my worship to you. So this wave offering is going to come in during the sacrificial time. It's totally free will. The Lord says to the Levites, I've given these to you too, to you and your sons and daughters, with you as a perpetual allotment. In other words, this is always going to happen. It's always going to belong to you. All the Thanksgiving offerings, all these wave offerings, every one of your household who's clean may eat it. Now, here's the question. What's it going to look like? What, what are these kinds of wave offerings, these free will offerings? What do they consist of? So the Lord's going to explain. They're, they're wondering, okay, what's this? It's going to be in addition to our support. The Lord's going to provide this for us. What's it going to look like? Well, verse 12 gives us that. And you're going to find this remarkably like Proverbs chapter 3, 9 we just looked at. All the best of the fresh oil and all the best of the fresh wine and, and of the grain, the first fruits of those which they give to the Lord. I give them to you. So in other words, you're going to offer a thanksgiving to the Lord. It's going to be the best, right? And that makes sense, doesn't it? That's not what Israel did, but that makes sense. That if you're going to offer a thanksgiving to the Lord, you're going to give him the best. And so he tells the Levites, that's what you're going to get as part of your support. They shall be yours. Every one of your household who is clean may eat it. Now, 
This is not giving what remained at the end of the last year, okay? Even the Lord said, you know, your new harvest will overcome what you have in your storehouses and, and all that. So it's not talking about stuff that's still sitting in there, you know, grapes at the bottom of the barrel and, and some sheaves of grain that are still standing there from the last harvest, and now you've got the first harvest. See, that's not the best. The Lord's talking about the new stuff. That's how it's supposed to be. Those are the parameters. If you want to offer a Thanksgiving offering to me, a wave offering, it needs to be the new stuff. That's not surprising. We see parameters on those kinds of things all the time. It's not just whatever you want to do. And, and here's the thing. The fact that Israel gave old stuff as their free will offerings is, is one of the reasons God brought accusation against them in Malachi. And you remember I was talking to you about Malachi before. In, in, this, in this prophecy, Malachi, through the Lord's leading, does a question and answer, a hypothetical question and answer. Uh, why do you do this? Well, we don't do this. Well, yes, you do, and here's why. And so this works the same way, and it has to do with this free will type of offering. Now, here, listen to what the Lord says about himself through Malachi. It's very important. For from the rising of the sun, even to its setting, my name will be great among the nations. Just like what we just read a minute ago in Psalm 50. In every place, incense offering is going to be offered to my name, and a grain offering that is pure. For my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. Now, pause right there for a second. So is he... Is his name great in all the nations right now? Definitely not. So we're talking about a future time. So the Lord's looking forward to a future time where all the nations will honor his name. Everybody's going to uh, have regard for who the Lord is and, and his holiness and his righteousness, just like we saw in Psalm 50. This is the reality of the future. Everybody, regardless of whether they believe in God or they think God exists or Jesus has the right to rule, it doesn't matter because all of, everybody's going to be brought under that rule of the Lord. And all the nations will exalt him. And my name will be great, the Lord says. And so he's setting something up here. And you can see he's making a point, And then he's going to say, okay, so how are you treating me? But here he says in verse, verse, through verse 11, uh, my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. Now here we go. But you are profaning it in that you say the table of the Lord is defiled and for its fruit, its food is despised. In other words, the table of the Lord doesn't really matter. It's not that big a deal. Okay, I mean, who really cares about that? You're going to come. I mean, I am offering a Thanksgiving, even if it is in the barn already, right? I'm just going to lift it up to the Lord. It doesn't really matter, right? You know, what I bring isn't important. Verse 13, you also say, my, how tiresome it is. In other words, I hate having to do this. You know, uh, and remember, giving that's done grudgingly or out of compulsion and not out of joy, does the Lord like that kind of giving? I mean, we saw that in 2 Corinthians 9, didn't we? It would be better, if you can't give it out of joy, to just keep it because you're going to get the same blessing from the Lord, which is nothing, by keeping it and spending it on yourself than you would giving it in grudging manner. And this is precisely what they're doing. They come and say, this is so tiresome, and what does it even matter? And so the Lord says, listen, all nations are going to regard me as great, and everyone is going to lift up thanksgiving offers to me. This is my name. It's great in all the nations. All the nations and every place, incense is going to be offered to me, and grain offerings that are pure, and my name will be great among the nations. But you profane it because you don't even care. See? So you don't do it out of joy. The Lord doesn't like that. He's not pleased with it. So you say how tiresome it is, and you disdainfully sniff at it. Big deal. Who cares? And you bring what was taken by robbery and what is lame or sick. So you bring the offering. In other words, you've defrauded someone, and then you came and you say, "Well, you know, it's 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 money laundering in in the in the divine way, right? I defrauded somebody, but it's going to be holy because I'm going to lift it up to the Lord." You think he's pleased with that? Something you got when you defrauded somebody? No. You're not fixing it because 
you stole it and then you gave it to the Lord, now it's all good. You bring what is lame or sick, so you bring the offering. In other words, you know, you've got a lamb that's perfectly healthy, you should offer that, but in other words, you give the ones that are about to die anyway. Oh, might as well, because, you know, it's going to the Lord, I don't get the use out of it. That's the attitude. Should I receive that from your hand, says the Lord? Now, remember everything he just said about himself, how it's going to be in the future. Should I take that from you? Cursed be the swindler, well, how's he a swindler? Who's a male in his flock and vows it. In other words, he's got this great ram in his flock, and it's in the prime of its life, and he says, this is what I'm going to give as a Thanksgiving offering, a wave offering to the Lord. It's going to end up, of course, on the table of the Levites because the Lord's going to give that to them. But you vowed to give the to the best. Instead, you brought the leftovers, the unwanted stuff, see. But cursed is the swindler who is a male in his flock and vows it, but sacrifices a blemished animal to the Lord. For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts. My name is feared among the nations. We see another place he said, would you offer that to your king on earth? Would you give what's lame and what's, what's leftover? Is that, would, that be ha- would he be happy with that? And yet, I'm a great king over all the earth, and you try to give that to me. See, this is the thing. Because this is voluntary giving, they vowed to give God the best. But, but because they gave him the worst and kept the best for themselves uh, is what they actually did. Because, listen, beloved, given the first fruits as we saw in Proverbs 3 is an act of faith, isn't it? You begin your harvest, you have the choicest stuff. That's what you're going to pick the first time you go through. Everything that looks terrific, it's fully ripe, and you want to pick that, and you want to use that on your table. You know that's going to feed your family and all that, and, and, and yet the Lord says if you're going to give that, give the first fruits, and that's an act of faith, see, and that's always how God wants his children to live, not just what's left over, not just what's extra, so it doesn't really hurt, that's sacrificial kinds of giving, see, and when they wanted to thank him and put their faith and their trust in his ability to provide, they gave the best. And now again, free will giving again isn't just whatever you want to do any more than it's whatever you want to do now. It's, now it's got to be sacrificial, generous, uh, faithful, single-minded, all of that. See, And it had to be the best. If you're going to give a Thanksgiving offering, then really thank me for what I provided for you. And that shouldn't surprise us. Now let's get back to voluntary giving during the law. Look with me, if you would, to Exodus 25, 1. So it'll be a few times, you'll be, you'll be in Exodus for a little bit, and then you'll be in a few books over, so you'll be right here in the Old Testament for a little while. And these are things you've probably read. I want to draw your attention to them because I think they connect very well to what the point we're trying to make. What does free will giving look like during the time of the law? You can find it, it's identical to what it looks like now. But look at Exodus 25, 1. Then the Lord spoke to Moses saying, so this is during the time of the law, and Moses is God's spokesperson, and he says, tell them this, tell the sons of Israel to raise a contribution for me. So in other words, there's going to be an offering, and there's going to be some need, and I want the people to just freely bring it. And, and this is the contribution which you are to raise from them, gold, silver, and bronze, blue and purple and scarlet material, fine linen, goat hair, Ram skins, verse 5, dyed red, porpoise skins, acacia wood, verse 6, oil for lighting, spices for the anointing oil and for fragrant incense. Verse 7, onyx stones and setting stones for the ephod and for the breastplate. So what's the voluntary contribution for? Well, look at verse 8. Let them construct a sanctuary for me that I may dwell among them. So God's instructing them to build a tabernacle. 
So they're going to be traveling along with this tabernacle that can be disassembled and carried and then reassembled, and this is where the Lord's going to dwell with them. And who is God asking to do the giving? Well, look at verse 2. He says, from every man whose heart, what? Moves him. Is that everybody? Well, you would hope it would be. But really, all he's asking for is people who desire to give. It's a heart attitude to give what you have. Now, God didn't say, give me a tenth of everything the Egyptians gave you on the way out of town. He certainly could have said that, couldn't he? I mean, you know, remember, they were slaves. They came out of Egypt, and they were wealthy. And who made that happen? The Lord did. In fact, the Lord said, uh, take from the Egyptians things that you need. And then in that way, the Egyptians were plundered by the Israelites when they left with great wealth and riches. He didn't say, give me 10% of everything you took, and we'll be good. He just said, if you have a heart that moves you, give. Give me whatever you want from your heart. God isn't concerned about the amount. He never is, is he? He's concerned about the heart, always. Now, he did give some guidelines on what he needed, again, didn't he? It shouldn't surprise us. I mean, he didn't want you to bring, you know, things that he didn't need. He told the people, and we read the list, you know, um, gold, silver, bronze, blue, purple, scarlet, fine, li- fine linen, goat hair, ram skins, porpoise skins, acacia wood, you know, all that kind of stuff. If you have that and your heart's inclined, give it. Now, what happened? We'll flip over to Exodus 35, if you would. Exodus 35, 20. Let's see what happened with, with this uh, free will offering. Verse 20 says this, Exodus 35. Then all the congregation of the sons of Israel departed from Moses' presence. Verse 21. Mark this, everyone whose heart stirred him, and again, everyone whose spirit moved him, came and brought the Lord's contribution for the work of the tent of the meeting and for all its service, and for the holy garments. Everything that the contribution was in, in, uh, intended for, that's, that's what was brought. Then, verse 22, again, all whose hearts moved them, both men and women, came and brought brooches and earrings and signet rings and bracelets, all articles of gold, so did every man who presented an offering of gold to the Lord. Every man who had in his possession blue and purple and scarlet material and fine linen goats, linen and goats, hair and ram skins dyed red and porpoise skins brought them. So if you didn't have silver, were you supposed to bring it? No. But if you had skins and you wanted to, did you bring them? Yeah. Was the Lord asking you for something that you didn't have? No. He's just saying, these are the things I need, and people knew if they had them, and then they offered them willingly. Okay? So again, the Lord's not asking for something he hasn't given you in offering. He never does. Just if you have it and you can provide it, then do it. So everyone who could make a contribution of silver and bronze brought the Lord's contribution. Everyone who had in his possession acacia wood for any work of the service brought it. Verse 25, all the skilled women spun with their hands and brought what they had spun in blue and purple and scarlet material and in fine linen. Verse 26, mark this, all the women whose hearts were stirred with a skill spun the goat's hair and the rulers brought the onyx stones and the stones for setting for the ephod and for the breastplate. Verse 28, and the spice and the oil for the light and for the anointing oil and for the fragrant incense. Verse 29, uh, then... All the men and women, mark it again, whose heart moved them to bring material for all the work which the Lord had commanded through Moses to be done, brought freewill offering to the Lord. Five times here in Exodus 35, one other time in Exodus 25. Condition of the heart, thankful, single-minded, generous, out of love, out of trust, out of security. What you had, you gave. See. Now skip to the next chapter, Exodus 36, 4, will you? And all the skillful men who were performing all the work of the sanctuary came 
each from the work which he was performing. So they're at work making all the things that they need. They're casting the castings and making the poles and put the curtains together, all the stuff that they're doing, getting this ready by the design the Lord had given. And they stop and they said to Moses, they come here and they said to Moses, mark this, the people are bringing much more than enough for the construction work which the Lord commanded us to perform. So Moses issued a command and a proclamation was circulated throughout the camp saying, no, let no man or woman any longer perform work for the contribution of the sanctuary. Thus, the people were restrained from bringing any more market for the material they had was sufficient and more than enough for all the work to perform it. So there was a contribution, free will giving. The Lord said what he needed. Everybody who had what they had and if it matched up with what was needed and their heart uh, moved them to do it, they gave it. There was more than enough. There wasn't any lack. Free will giving before the law. Cain and Abel brought what they wanted to bring. We know that the Lord had somehow indicated it needed to be a, an animal, and Cain did not bring that. Noah gave what he wanted to give, but we saw that it had to be from the clean animals, so there were some parameters there. Abraham gave what he wanted to give. Uh, of course, he, he didn't even give 10 of all that he had, only 10 of, of, the, of the choicest things. So uh, Cain and Abel had to bring an animal. Noah had to bring clean animals. Free will giving during the law. People gave what they wanted to give. What parameters? Well, don't bring me the leftovers stacked up in your barns. Bring me the first fruits what they needed for the tabernacle, right? Not just anything, but the contribution was what we needed. So if you've got that and your heart moves, you bring it. And, and probably one of the most vivid contrasts between free will giving and required giving under the law is found in Deuteronomy 15. So I'd like you to turn there if you would. Deuteronomy 15, uh, 7. Three books to your right from where you are. And, and we see this as a very important uh, part, and, and it's something that uh, we have saw before last week. We just saw a portion of it. But you're going to see the general heart attitude that needs to be there in all of this. Verse 7 says this, Deuteronomy 15, 7. If there is a poor man with you, one of your brothers, in any of your towns, in your land, which the Lord your God is giving you, you shall not harden your heart nor close your hand from your poor brother. So he has some need. Verse 8. So what am I going to do? Well, you shall freely open your hand to him and shall generously lend him sufficient for his need in whatever he lacks. So generously lend sufficient for his need. So if he has a need, you're not just barely making it or you're covering only part of it. If you have it and you can meet it, you do it. Okay? And, and that's free will giving always, right? See a need, meet a need. Now, now this is the rest of it, and we looked at part of this last time when we looked at, at that borrower's relief tax, which could be, play a big role in your life if you had a lot of money and you'd loaned out a lot of money. Um, but look at the wording in verse 15, uh, chapter 15, verse 9. Beware there is no base thought in your heart, saying, The seventh year of the year of remission is near, and your eye is hostile towards your poor brother, and you give him nothing, that he may cry out to the Lord against you, and it'll be a sin to you. So, uh, as we said before, you're supposed to remit uh, all the debt at the end of the seventh year, the Lord's proclamation, so it wasn't optional. You had to do it. And so you're not going to plan on loaning this guy anything because he's coming to you a year before the remission year, and you don't want to be stuck with all the debt, holding the bag and just kind of giving it to him. So you're saying, oh, I don't think I can do it. And that's a base thought. And, and, and uh, what did the Jews, or what were they to do instead? Look at verse 10. You shall generously give to him, and your heart shall not be grieved when you give to him. In other words, now it's not loaning anymore, is it? Now it's just, you're just giving it to him. If he needs it, you just give it to him. If you're thinking about the end of the, end of the seven years and you're, you're going to be stuck holding this big bag of debt and they're not going to pay you back and, you, and you're putting all your, your hopes and all your delight and your money instead of obedience and you're thinking somehow that um, you know, you're going to be less because you met his need, just give it to him if you can, see? Because for this thing, look there, because for this thing, your Lord, your God will bless you 
in all your work and all your undertakings, not just here. So you're going to give, and of course he's going to give back, pressed down, shaken together, and overflowing like we see all the time. But in all your undertakings, because the Lord sees your heart, you're not, you're not caught up in the security of what you think you own. You're just going to give it to him. He needs it, just give it away. And don't worry about it, because I'm going to bless you. For the poor will never cease to be in the land. In other words, there's always going to be opportunity to meet needs of people who have less than you. Therefore, I command you, saying, you shall freely open your hand to your brother, to your needy and the poor in your land. That's just so clear, isn't it? And, and there's so many more examples. We don't have near enough time to go through them, we, so we're not going to do it. But just one more, and then we're going to move on. And this is a wonderful example. It's a lengthy story, so I want you to turn, if you would, to First Chronicles chapter 29. And uh, we're going to fast forward 400 years from the tabernacle. So the tabernacle has been built 400 years later. We'll see what's going on here in Israel. And the context here is that David gives for the building of the temple. He thought he was going to get to build it. The Lord said, no, you're not going to get to build it. You were a man of war, and your son is going to be a man of peace, and he's the one who's going to get to build it. But you can lay up this, uh, this uh, in preparation. And so David's doing that. And some of this will be familiar to you. I, I gave you a snapshot out of this verse just to show how good the Lord owns everything. But the whole story is so remarkable, and I think you'll enjoy it. Verse 6 says this. So First Chronicles 29, 6. Then the rulers of the father's households and the princes of the tribes of Israel and the commanders of thousands and of hundreds with the overseers over the king's work offered willingly. So David's taken up an offering, and what did, how did they offer? Because David said it, and I have to do it. No, they offered willingly. That's the right heart attitude for free will giving. And for the service of the house of God, they gave 5,000 talents and 10,000 derricks, and that's a Persian coin, of gold and 10,000 talents of silver and 18,000 talents of brass and 100,000 talents of iron. Was the Lord asking for uh, talents of iron if you didn't have them? No. If they had them, then they give them, right? Whoever possessed precious stones gave them to the treasury of the house of the Lord in care of Jehiel, the Jer uh, Gershonite. Verse 9, and then the people rejoiced because they had offered, mark this, they, they rejoiced because they offered so willingly for they made their offering to the Lord. Again, mark it with a whole heart. That sounds very familiar to us, doesn't it? They did it with joy, and they did it willingly, and they did it with single-mindedness. And that's precisely how free will giving is always done. And so they rejoiced because this, is, was, this was the attitude. This is how it was, this is how it was coming down. So look, look back at your copy of God's words. And, the King da and King David also rejoiced greatly. So David blessed the Lord in the sight of all the assembly, and David said. So David's getting ready to pray, and he's lifting this up to the Lord in praise. Blessed are you, O Lord God of Israel, our Father, forever and ever. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty, indeed, everything that is in heavens and the earth. Yours is the dominion, O Lord, and you exalt yourself as head over all. Now, if you want to learn how to pray at the beginning of your prayer in the way that Scripture prescribes it, you'll find that at the beginning of prayer, we always see praise, don't we? And so as you're teaching your children to pray, make sure that they understand that although the Lord is very concerned about their needs and that he is interested in what they need to ask him and he's interested in what you need to ask him, this is the good way to start. You recognize who the Lord is and, and what he is and how he supplies and his position. This is a great way. You want to pray like the Bible prays, this is how you pray. And then he says this, both riches and honor come from you and you rule over all. So he recognizes everything he has, both his position as king and the wealth that he has ac accumulated all came from the Lord. And this is the part that I read to you already. And in your hand is power and might, and it lies in your hand to make great and to strengthen everyone. 
Now, therefore, verse 13, our God, we thank you and praise your glorious name. But who am I and who are my people that we should be able to offer as generously as this? For all things come from you and from your hand we've given you. Isn't that remarkable? I mean, he says precisely the reality of the situation. How absurd is it when we finally realize that everything we have comes from the Lord's hand and we turn right around and give it to him? then how hard should it be to give up a french fry as we, we talked about last time, right? You, got a whole, you give your son a whole pack of french fries and you just want to take one, your dad's right, right? And your son's like, nah, that's my french fries, right? So how difficult is it to realize the Lord is, you know, we can give him these things because from his hand, he's given to us. Look at verse 15. It just gets better. For we are sojourners before you and tenants as our fathers were. In other words, we're temporary here. We don't, we don't last but a... a you know, on the grand timeline of your glory and your greatness, it's the blip. And yet, even in that blip, our days on the earth are like a shadow, and there is no hope. In other words, you know, God has given us all of this, even though our stay on earth is temporary, and there's no chance that the life is going to be extended. And yet, he's been that gracious to somebody who doesn't last but a blip. See? It was like, from your hand we've given you, and you've given us all this to give back to you, and it's abundant. He's watching this offering come in, and he just can't believe that sojourners on the earth, the Lord would take an interest in them and make sure they had what they needed and enough to give, see? But that's the Lord's inclination, isn't it? And it's always been, and we've seen this over and over again and all throughout the Word of God. Verse 16, O Lord our God, all this abundance that we have provided to build you a house for your holy name, it's from your hand, and it's all yours. And since I know, oh my God, that you try the heart and you delight in uprightness, and we know that, right? The Lord evaluates how we give. He wants a joyful giver, and he evaluates the heart. And if we're not doing it in joy, we're doing it out of obligation or, or some contention of some kind, then you just might as well keep it, see? I, in the integrity of my heart, have willingly offered these things. So what kind of giver does God have a delight in? What does he, who does he have a special love for that we saw in 2 Corinthians 9? So, now, with joy I have seen your people who are present here make their offerings, here it is, willingly to you. And so, when David understands all of this and he sees all this, he says, in verse 18, he says, O Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, our fathers, mark this, preserve this forever in the intentions of the heart of your people and direct their heart to you. In other words, he sees this generous heart attitude of trust and, and commitment and single-mindedness towards the Lord, recognizing that he's given us everything. He says, preserve this in their hearts forever. Help this be captured in their hearts. Help them not to forget what that looks like. And beloved, if you think about this, here, here's a bonus question for you. What is one of the ways that will indicate that your heart is directed towards God? You know what it is, don't you? When you give generously of what you have, cheerful, sacrificial, faithful, unbegrudging, uncoerced giving. And we said on the very, very first day of our study, uh, the way we manage what we have and the way we give away what we have is always a barometer of our spiritual health. Always. And, Lord, and, and David, as he looked at, his, at the people and how, how they were giving with a whole heart and willingness and joy, he said, just preserve this in their heart forever, your people. So during the time of the law, tithing, required giving, form of taxation, finance the national government, 
which was initially a theocracy, three main ties they gave supported the leader's livelihood, sustained nationalism with the festivals, and maintained a welfare system. That amounted to 23 and a third percent, plus some others we talked about. Free will giving during the time of the law is voluntary giving. It's always been voluntary giving. It's directed towards God. Whatever the amount you wanted from the heart, it's not asking you for something you don't have. It's just asking you to be single-minded and willing and, and sacrificial in the way that you give because you recognize he's your security. And it was personal, and the giver was motivated by thankfulness and gratitude and trust. It's always been that way. That's how it was before the time of the law. That's how it is during the time of the law. And finally, what about now? I'm sure you can see free will giving now is exactly the same. That's how it is now. Now, we're going to get to our last question. Here it is. Is there required giving in the New Testament era? And I asked you to tuck that away last week. Let's bring it out now. And what's the answer? Knowing what we know about required giving and its purpose before the law through Joseph and its purpose during the law of the Jewish people, what's the answer? Is there required giving in the New Testament era? Yes, there is. In what form does it take? Taxes. And it's always been that, hasn't it? So I've got a few examples, and I think this will help you kind of uh, set your heart here and understand that we're breaking this down correctly. Mark chapter 12, verse 13. I'll put it on the screen for time. So Jesus is teaching with his disciples, and he's spending time with the people, and the Pharisees and Herodians are going to come to him, and they're going to trap him, try to get him in trouble with the government. And so they say this to him, and this is kind of our segue into this section. They the story in Mark uh, relates it this way in uh, chapter 12. Then they sent some of the Pharisees and Herodians to him in order to trap him in a statement. And they came to him and they said, uh, Teacher, we know that you're truthful and defer to no one. Now, was, is that true? Did they know that he's truthful and defer to no one? No. They thought he belonged to Beelzebub, right? I mean, they thought he was uh, uh, an am implement of, of Satan himself. No. But they're coming with this sweet, sticky kind of approach, and they, they want to try to butter him up. Uh, for you're not partial to any but teach the way of God in truth. Here's, here's, the, uh, here's the trapping statement, okay? It says this. Is it lawful to pay a poll tax to Caesar or not? Shall we pay or shall we not pay? And you can see the, what they're trying to, how they're trying to squeeze him, right? I mean, if he says you're not supposed to pay, what are they going to say? Oh, he's so in sedition. You're going to go, go to the, the governments and say he, doesn't, he thinks you shouldn't pay because, you know, uh, we're followers of Jesus and he's, he's God's son and he doesn't, he doesn't have to pay because he doesn't submit to Caesar. So uh, that's what they think he's going to say. And he says to them, knowing their hypocrisy, uh, why are you testing me? Bring me a denarius to look at. And they brought one, and he said to them, whose likeness and inscription is this? And they said to him, Caesar's. And Jesus said to them, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And they were amazed at him. So in other words, should they pay the tax? Sure. Caesar requires it. It's not optional. It's not voluntary. That's what the tax is, so you pay it. And that's what's owed to Caesar. Same thing, right? What form does giving take here? It's required giving takes uh, the form of tax. Now flip over to Romans chapter 13, verse uh, uh, Romans chapter 13 and verse 1, if you would. And this is a really great passage. If you were with us uh, a number of years ago, we went through this. And, and in context, so when you get into chapter 12, you begin to see what salvation looks like 
uh, and the Holy Spirit's involved in your life and you're controlled by the Holy Spirit, uh, things are going to change in the way you deal with people. And so it starts out a very small circle, deals with your family, and then it moves out and deals with the church and moves out and deals with, you know, your friends around you. And it gets really, it gets a lot bigger. And then you get to this point in Romans 13, chapter 1, chapter 13, verse 1, and now you're dealing with the government. And so this is what a spirit-controlled person, this is what their attitude needs to be. And I'll read the whole thing even though we're not dealing with all of it right now. But verse 1 says this, Every person is to be subject in subjection to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. Verse, tw- verse 2. Therefore, whoever resists authority is, o- is opposed the ordinance of God, and they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. Verse 3. For rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior, but for evil. Do you want to have no fear of authority? Do what's good, and you'll have praise from the same, for it's a minister of God to you for good. But if you do what's evil, be afraid. For it does not bear the sword for nothing, for it's a minister of God, an avenger who brings wrath on the ones who practice evil. Now, I want to stop right there, and I did this in first service, and I want to do this again. Um, just to be connected to what's going on right now, a couple days ago, a guy was um, executed, federal prison, um, 21 years since the crime. I don't know if you saw it, but I saw then popping up everywhere, all these Instagram posts and, and memes and, and all of this stuff that said, you know, abolish the uh, capital punishment. And I think it's interesting that we point out that one of the things that we learned from the Old Testament, which is, if man sheds the blood of man, by man his blood shall be shed, has not been rescinded. The Lord is very clear about that. And here is particularly clear because the government bears the sword not in vain, but as an avenger to carry out the wrath on an evildoer. And so I want you to be careful as a believer to not jump on with these virtual sig- virtue signalers who think somehow that they're representing God and being very generous uh, and being extra Christian by saying that we should abolish the, the capital punishment that falls on those who shed the blood of men. That's a wrong position, beloved, and you shouldn't jump on with them because you're not representing God's thoughts and his, his mind at all. And so uh, I think it's very clear here they bear the sword and not in vain. They're allowed to carry out the wrath. And that particular individual was responsible for the murder of two people and the burning of them in a car. He was tried by a jury of his peers and found guilty and for 21 years sat in a federal corrections facility not having carried out the punishment that was supposed to be put on him, first of all, from the Lord, and then secondly, by the government who represents God. So be careful that you don't join in with things that aren't part of what a believer should be saying. Now, verse 5 says this, Therefore, God is an avenger of those who bring wrath on those who practice evil. Therefore, it is necessary to be in subjection, not only because of wrath, but also for conscience' sake, verse 6. And here's where we get to the point of the passage. For because of this, you also pay taxes. Because of what? Because there's a government that has to rule. And it's supposed to, in, in either a, a greater or lesser degree, uh, bring about um, justice and take care of, punish the evildoer and, and uh, take care of the people. So you pay taxes because you have a government that God's ordained. For rulers are servants of God, devoting themselves to this very thing. So we, re- we support uh, the authority that God has put in place when we pay our taxes. So is it optional to pay your taxes? It is not. And, and there's a whole movement in Christianity that we don't have to pay taxes. We shouldn't have to because we're not under the authority of Caesar. We're under the authority of God. I'm sorry. That, this isn't that hard to figure out. This, this is very clear. We don't have to try to figure out what that's meaning. Render to all what's due to them. Tax to whom tax due. Custom to whom custom. Fear to whom fear. Honor to whom honor. So again, are taxes free will giving? No. They're not optional. Unless it's that little box at the bottom of your tax return that says, I want to donate a dollar to the presidential election fund. That's optional. You can check that. That's free will giving. You can give that if you want to. But the rest of it, it's mandatory. So 
supposed to give, you're supposed to pay what you're supposed to pay, and that's of the Lord, and he blesses that. that just like he blessed it in, in Old Testament times, he's going to bless it now. You do what you're supposed to do, the Lord recognizes you're doing what you're supposed to do. Even if governments are wicked and, and all of that kind of stuff, you do what you're supposed to do, and the Lord, uh, that is good and pleasing to the Lord. So, is there required giving in the New Testament era? What's the answer? Yes. It takes the form of taxes under the government that God's ordained, and it certainly is not 10%, is it? Is there free will giving in the New Testament era? Yes, there is. And beloved, you are experts at that now. You know what that's supposed to look like. And it has absolutely nothing to do with tithing. And we also saw that giving in this way is the pathway of blessing. It has to be there in the form of a seed before it can come in the form of a harvest. And they're proportional. Plant sparingly, reap sparingly, plant abundantly, reap abundantly. The harvest is in proportion to and the same kind of seed that's sown. And we just see this over and over and over again. Same principles we've seen throughout the word of God in the form of an axiom. And it's going to lead to a special love from God to you and an open-handedness from God to you and a glorifying of God because of you. Remember, godly friends to love and pray for you and godly likeness developed in you. When you give in this way, you start to resemble the Lord. Now, we're going to close with this. I know we're a little over, so look at 1 Kings 17. And, and I think this will be a blessing to you as we, we're going to wrap up everything in this passage right here, and we'll be done. 1 Kings 17, 8. And this is an important passage. I think you will see its connection to everything at the end. And the context here is Elijah and, and the drought that the Lord had him announce to Ahab. And Ahab is a very well-known, uh, familiar northern kingdom king uh, sometime during the beginning of the drought. And, of course, everybody's suffering under the drought, even though it's made to punish Elijah. Even righteous people are suffering. And then verse 8 says this in Second King, and First Kings 17, 8. It says, Then the word of the Lord came to him, this is Elijah, saying, Arise, go to Seraphath, which belongs to Sidon, and stay there. So Elijah is, is trying to make sure he has what he needs. He's been at a stream. He's been, the Lord's provided with ravens and all that kind of stuff. And now he's going to go, and he's going to go to Zarephath. And, and so uh, the Lord additionally gives him this information. He says, behold, I've commanded a widow there to provide for you. So he's going to go to Zarephath. He's wondering, what, what can I do in Zarephath in a town? It's going to be tough. I mean, there's no food. And he says, don't worry. I, want, I have a widow there who's going to provide for you. So he's got an important point he's going to be teaching, and it has to do with this widow. So verse 10, he arose, and he went to Zarephath. And when he came to the gate of the city, behold, a widow was there gathering sticks and obviously the Lord made it clear, this is the person. I'm sure she's not the only widow. But he called out to her and he said, please get me a little water in a jar that I may drink. And um, so she goes to get it and, and he calls to her and says, and please bring me a piece of bread in your hand. And maybe you've done this to your wife. Hey, while you're up, could you bring me a, you know, make your own sandwich, that kind of thing. Um, you know, she's already up and she's doing it, except for my wife who just, you know, dotes on me. But, uh, you know, in general, it could happen in a house, you know. But... Uh, so this is a demanding guy and uh, a very gracious lady. Verse 12, but she said, um, as the Lord your God lives, I have no bread, only a handful of flour in a bowl and a little oil in a jar. And behold, I'm gathering a few sticks that I may go in and prepare for me and my son that we may eat it and die. That's a dire situation. They're in the middle of a famine. This is a widow who doesn't have a husband at home. She doesn't have anything. She barely has enough to eat one more meal. And yet, this is the one the Lord has said, go to Zarephath, you're going to meet this person. And you're going to ask her to take care of you, and that's what she's going to do, see. Now, verse 13, Elijah said to her, do not fear. Go and do as you have said, 
but make me a little bread cake from it first and bring it out to me. And afterward, you may make one for yourself and for your son. And you might think, man, that's very insensitive. Right? When you read that at first glance, you're thinking, it's very selfish. I mean, she just told you she didn't have anything. But this is, this is the reason for the story, and this is why it's recorded for us. And beloved, as parents, make sure when you, when you go through these stories with your kids in the Old Testament, make sure you make them understand why it's there. We're just teaching the story so that they know the story and they can recite it back. To, make sure that they understand why the Lord included it. And here's the reason why he included it. And it's included right here in verse 14. So Elijah says to her, don't fear, do as you said. For thus says the Lord God of Israel. So how sure is it? Sure. The bowl of flour shall not be exhausted, nor shall the jar of oil be empty until the day the Lord sends rain on the face of the earth. You can have what you need. Don't fear. So before she goes and makes the cake and before she goes and gets the water and brings it back to him, he already tells her, don't fear. Do it. So who is actually teaching her the life lesson on security? The same one who provided all of the oil and the flour before the drought is the same one who's going to provide all the oil and the flour during the drought. So what'd she do? Did she say, oh, I don't know. I know where all this comes from. You know, there isn't any more. Nobody's harvesting anything. Nobody's been harvesting anything. There's no bread to buy. We can't get any flour. You know, there's no way this can happen. You know, supply and demand and all that. There's a lot of demand. There's no supply. It's not happening. There's no way that I can make this happen. Verse 15. She went and did according to the word of Elijah. And she and he and her household ate for many days. The bowl of flour was not exhausted, nor did the jar of oil become empty, according to the word of the Lord, which she spoke through Elijah, which he said would last until the rains came. And, and beloved, if, if God tells us he'll fill our jar... It's because he has the power to do it. And is that so different from Luke 6.38, given it be given to you, they'll pour in your lap a good measure, pressed down chicken together, running over for by your standard of measure, it'll be measured to you in return. Is that so different from that? Doesn't it require the same exact amount of faith to believe that? Do you believe that? See? We see it right here, don't we? It's repeated over and over again. If God says, I'll fill your jar or your lap to overflowing, do you believe he has the power to do that and that he's inclined to do it? Because that's what it really comes down to. This is a measure of faith, isn't it? Don't fear. That's what Elisha told the widow. God actually says, I'll fill the bowl every day, and I'll fill the jar every day, not just until the rains came. He says to you, I'll take care of you. You give, and it'll be given back. Shaking together, pressed down, overflowing. And you'll never lack what you need, and I will provide all your needs according to what? His riches and glory in Christ Jesus. How much resource is that? But here's the thing. Like the widow of Zarephath, you're going to have to give him what you have to start with and put your faith to work. See? That's how it's going to work. You want to show him that you're trusting him for your security? Then you need to start giving like he says to give. She trusted in God. He provided for her. Are you? Are you giving in a way that demonstrates that you believe that? Because that's the issue. Let's close and be dismissed in prayer. Lord, we thank you today for an opportunity to, to be in your word. We thank you today for an opportunity to, uh, to love you and adore you. You're worthy. You've provided for us everything we have. It all comes from your hand. Lord, riches and honor and glory all belong to you. 
you give to us liberally and generously constantly. You provide salvation and you provide for us forgiveness all day, every day. You're a gracious, good, and giving God. All because you gave the first gift, the gift that proved what love looks like through Jesus. As we celebrate this season and uh, draw up to this time that we celebrate the time when Christ came, we're reminded that that gift showed what generosity and single-mindedness and faithfulness look like. And we want to be like that for you, Father. In fact, I pray that your work, the work of faith that you saw in this widow and that we see mentioned all through the Old and New Testament in every family and every individual here at Berean. We pray all this in the name of your son, Jesus. All God's people said.